as an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates is the incredible feats of the people behind the games, here? dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and ever in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Chris Mosley, current CEO at PlayCorp. So join us as we explore his journey. As always, if you haven't already done so, please consider subscribing and dropping a positive five-star review on this podcast feed to help boost the show up in the algorithms. We really appreciate your support and enjoy the episode. So today I'm joined by Chris. How are you? I'm really great. Thanks, Paul. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on. Um, this is going to be a really fascinating conversation. You've been a part of this local industry for, for quite some time and have been a part of some really fantastic things. And so I'm, I'm keen to pick your brain. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been part of the local industry now uh, for almost 30 years now. So I started uh, Blue Tongue Entertainment back in the day when I was still a university student. It actually took me uh, 10 years to graduate from Melbourne University because I had this kind of side gig, which was this game studio that went on to become quite successful. So uh, we, we, that's how we all started. Yeah, and I guess I'll be, I'll be careful of us jumping too far ahead because that is a fantastic jumping off point. But uh, this is Dev Diary, so we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey has led to this current point in time. Now, you've touched on that kind of entryway in for yourself, but I'd love to reflect on a point prior to even that and just kind of discuss some of your interactions with video games prior. Um, what was the first... I mean, do you recall what the first video game was that you played or what some of the very first games were that you interacted with? Well, I, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm 51 now, so it goes back quite, quite some time, but um, I'm actually a software engineer myself, and uh, so I've been kind of coming up from the technology side of things. But when I was about nine years old, I was introduced to, I think it was an Atari 500, and then my dad bought us a, a BBC Model B, if you can believe it or not. It's a 6502 processor, which is yep. kind of like the, the precursor to the CPU that you have in almost all of your phones now, but this was an 8-bit um, microprocessor with I think it had 32k of RAM if you can even imagine that but that's that's where we started and I remember the first thing I did was I typed in my name on this BBC Model B and I pressed enter and it said syntax error and I was just hooked from that moment on. <laughs> what, what is this thing? How do I how do I proceed? What, what is the syntax error? All of those sorts <laughs> of questions I'm sure. Um, and so when it when it came to to video games I guess where did where did your first interactions with those come? I mean I, I, I was you know, playing, all the other kids were out running around and uh, playing on their skateboards and on, on their bikes. And I was busy playing Pac-Man. I had one of those little LCD Pac-Man games. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, the original ones. Um, and um, I would play that for hours. And then, of course, it was Space Invaders. And then as time progressed and we went into the PC realm, it was games like, you know, Civilization. I think I lost four years of my life playing Civ. For me, story. Age of Empires and things like this. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Civ one is a very familiar story. I've had quite a few guests mention that they've kind of fallen down the, the Civ well at some point throughout their lives um, and has played a, a key part in even the decision to pursue the industry in a working capacity themselves. Was that a similar sort of story for you? I mean, we've obviously touched on a few important games along the way, but was were experiences like Civ or any other specific games important in that pursuit of actually entering the industry yourself? I think that's actually a really, really good point because um, I loved games and I loved the technology side of it, but I never 
in my wildest dreams considered, you know, starting my own company or starting a business or anything like this. But playing Civ gave me a taste of what it might like to to be in charge of what it's like to have responsibility. So it completely changed my thinking. I think it fundamentally set me up to to believe that maybe I could, you know, one day run my own business. I mean, you just looked at that that box and thought, I could be Sid Meier. Right? <laughs> I actually met him once at a conference, and I ran up to shake his hand. I think I scared the hell out of him. But <laughs> I, maybe had it not ha- not happened hundreds and thousands of times before, I'm sure. So um, I'm sure everyone walks away saying the exact same thing, and Sid sitting back going, "Oh, this is the twentieth person today." <laughs> um, so th- they were obviously important key pillars along the way. But as you said, you didn't necessarily think that that was something that was necessarily attainable for a while. What was it that kind of changed that for you? And uh, I mean, if we focus on kind of your studies, you're at the Uni of Melbourne for a while there, you were doing a Bachelor of Engineering and Software Engineering, but how did how did that then become Blue Tongue as the first jumping off point, as you touched on before? Well, I think, um, you know, you, you're studying and you're doing everything that you're, you're, you're being told that you should be doing, but in the back of your mind, you have this, this thing that's always drawing you you to towards games it's, it's almost like a disease it's you just can't let it go so yes you're studying and yes you're doing all of these things but you're always in the background making a game uh, you're always coding you're always creating if you're if you're a creative person you need these outlets and so it, it, we couldn't help ourselves like you know we we, we were we were constantly making games Our, the, the first game that that um i was writing while i was actually a student at melbourne university was uh, interestingly enough, the first ever AFL game for PC in Australia. It was called AFL, AFL Finals. Finals Fever. Yeah. Yes. So that's actually quite a tragic story because um, I didn't have money to buy 3D Studio Max and the various development tools and all these sorts of things. So we saved up all of our money and we went to Singapore and there was this particular shopping center and the, the top floor of the shopping center, they sold all of this counterfeit software. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Went, on a trip and we gathered all of this software that we possibly could. This is going back, I don't know, 28 years or something like that. Um, And um, so we we, we had enough software to to start to be able to build this thing. And we thought, you know, once we get this out there and we start selling the numbers then we can buy the software legitimately and do this sort of thing. Anyway, so after about four months of work, slaving away on this thing, I think my girlfriend was about to leave me at the time. My hard drive got corrupted and I lost everything, like the whole thing just disintegrated in a heap and uh, I I remember waking up the next day and I couldn't move and for about I think it was close to two months I just basically couldn't leave my room it was just absolutely devastating and then um, I described the story to a friend of mine he said you really got to meet this other company they've got an AFL license I started talking to them motivation slowly built up again i managed to leave my room again and and we rebuilt that game and that became afl finals fever which went on to beat need for speed here in australia which was which was quite extraordinary at the time yeah no small feat um i guess you know it's it's crazy we talk about all this and then we're on the on the eve of a new afl game coming out and it's such a far cry from 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 the time i mean how do you like it's it's not your own product and we won't wade too deeply into that but uh, when you when you look and see how things are kind of traveled when it comes to the AFL video game scene. Um, what do you think? I mean, it, it, it's it's just, it, it, it's remarkable how far we have come. I mean, the computers that we built the first AFL game didn't have maths co-processors. So it was really hard to just simulate the number of players you have on two teams in AFL. Like yeah. one of the reasons it wasn't done was because you have so many players 
and just doing the maths to move them around the pitch was was extraordinarily expensive without a, a co-processor. So we're talking three, eight, six days, you know. And then to access the memory, you had access to about 650k of the memory. But to access the, you know, beyond 650k, you had to do all kinds of magic to access this memory. And of course, if you got sprites and things like that, you know, the challenge was immense. We had to build our engines from scratch. We couldn't just go out and buy an engine and then yes. build the game. We had to build the engine and build the game at the same time. So it was an extraordinary time. Um, you know, you, you hear these stories of back then people working till two, three in the morning. That was part of the reason was because- There's so much to do. Uh, there was no technology for us to just pick off the shelf and use. We had to build all the pieces. I could I could talk about this a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and look, I'm more than happy to get into the weeds with the whole thing. But uh, as well as AFL finals fever, there was there was titles like, and this is I guess in those early days at Blue Tongue before you before you departed, we've got the likes of Riding Star, there's Starship Troopers, there's Jurassic Park. So working with a few kind of established licenses as as well as you know a high, high profile local sport, all of those sorts of uh, different things. There, I mean, what was it like working on different established IP as well? I mean, yeah, it it just happened. It happened over an eight-year period, but it felt like it was a very, very rapid <laughs> acceleration for us. I mean, we went from you know a bunch of kids basically working in a garage, eating baked bean pizzas and no money, to you know working on Jurassic Park with Steven Spielberg. So it was a hell of hell of a ride, as you can imagine. Um, I mean, I'm I'm right grappling with the baked bean pizzas part of it at the moment. <laughs> you you, you open your cupboard and you have a look and see what you have and you just mix it together and that's, what, that's dinner, right? <laughs> I'll have to try it at some point. I don't know if my wife will approve, but we'll see how we go. I mean, that that, that I guess that's what it took to, to, yeah. to you know to start our own company. Um, you're talking about an era. I guess it's not really that long ago, but you know, people weren't investing in startups. They weren't, you yeah. know. There wasn't this industry of investors and there weren't people that were willing to hand over money for you to go and, and, and build this stuff. It just didn't exist in those days. And so we never even thought to go and ask people for money. So instead, we just said, right, we need to survive. How do we feed ourselves? You know, how do we clothe ourselves? And uh, we were quite creative. I think it's a little bit difficult. It's a little bit harder these days. I think you you do need to raise money in today's market because just the cost of living and, and, and housing yourself was so much greater than it was back then. Yeah, unless you're almost doing it on your own and kind of working for yourself and no one else, then yeah, I think as soon as there's other parties involved, there's finances, there's those sort of constraints and yeah, it makes it a lot more challenging for people these days. But I, I do appreciate the uh, the make do with what we've got sort of mentality um, from, back, uh, from, from back in those early days of Blue Tongue. And so you were there from 1995 to 2003. How did... Um, how did that uh, eventuate with your departure? Because obviously Blue Tongue continued afterwards until unfortunately the, the THQ circumstances there and the, sh and the shutdown of 2011, if I've got my, my timeline right. Um, how, did it, how did it come to be that you, you moved on at that point? Because from, from there, Red Tribe was the next step. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good point. I think, you know, after a certain amount of time, you just... One of the things about the creative industry is it's it's really you're you're putting your you're putting your yourself into the into this stuff. You can't help it. It's not like you know it's not like you're you're making something and um, somebody uses it and it's kind of okay. You're yeah. you're taking it's like your identity and your creativity and yourself is all tied up in these things and it can be really emotionally draining. So you know being in the games industry is a hell of a roller coaster ride. Like you put your heart and soul into something. And people might not realize this, but they'll make a few throwaway 
comments or you'll, you'll get a few reviews and the game might be doing fantastically well but your brain just fixates on these little negative things that people say and after a while it just has an impact on you and for me I think I just had had enough like you know I'd been working non-stop and ridiculous hours for so long that I think I, my biologically my brain just said you know you got to get the hell out of here yeah and so that's what that's what I did and I went and I tried some other stuff but of course the allure of games just brought me back it's you know you you, you once you've had a taste for the creativity of creating games you, you there's, there's nothing else for you 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 have to make games so. yeah you're certainly hearing of more people that are coming from other disciplines or other industries that for whatever reason they step foot into the games industry get a taste and then there really does feel like a no going back at that point. So no matter how hard maybe you might try to avoid it, you always find yourself gravitating back. Uh, so Red Tribe form, forming that um, as well and being and being the CEO there. Uh, what was, I guess, the goal, the point of difference for you as you're establishing that studio as opposed to what you'd done when you had formed Blue Tongue? Because obviously you've got a lot, of, you've learned a lot at, that, at this particular point, failures, positives, all, all sorts, everything along that whole spectrum. What were you able to bring from those experiences to the formation of Red Tribe? Well, my thinking was that um, the, the, this, this, this idea that you, know, you have to build your own technology was compromising the different sorts of things and ideas that we could do. I wanted to focus more on game development and less on, on engine development. And so there was, yeah. a bit of a, there was a bit of a push. You know, this, is, this is at the time where these, these large game engines like Gamebryo and uh, oh, Render yeah. Man... And, they started to emerge, and so I saw I saw this possibility where um, there was it's kind of like a second wave of game development within the country that was made possible by having access to these technologies. So the first wave, really, it was impossible unless you had the, those hardcore engine developers, and that was the only way you could kind of create a studio back then um, in an environment that was much less competitive because it was really hard to make a game. It was really hard to release a game. You might have had four thousand games in a year released. Uh, on consoles or even less than 2000 on consoles uh, if i remember correctly so so the change in thinking was hey look these te technologies look really really promising if we can if, if we don't have to worry about the tech anymore maybe we can focus and and work on all these dream projects that we we have and well how do we start the studio well we, we don't have any money so let's go out there and start doing fee for service work so most of the experience i had at that point was doing fee for service work which is basically making games for publishers yeah and it's very lucrative. It's 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 steady work. It, it's a job essentially, but that allows you to build up your studio. And the idea was to to build it up to a point where we could start to build our own our own games and our own IP because that's the dream that we all have. But that takes time. <clears throat> it took about six years to get to that point. And we had, you know, I think it was, uh, I, I think we were we 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 had about forty million worth of contracts at that point yeah. um, that we've signed up over six projects everything was going fantastic and we started to you know create our own little ips and then of course the gfc hit in 2007 <laughs> yeah and it's a pretty pretty powerful sort of moment that thing for the entire australian industry it really decimated so many i mean obviously there's a lot of high profile closures there's other studios hanging by a thread it was a really really awful time not just obviously with the games industry but across the world but certainly had a really profound uh, impact in the industry that we're obviously focusing on today um, and so trying to recover from that not a small task yeah I mean initially we thought hey we can ride this out we've got plenty of money in the bank we've got these these great games we've got these great contracts and then slowly the contracts started to dry up uh, and then the six the six 
publishers that were really interested in our original IP games. One by one, very slowly, they they disappeared over a period of about, I think it was, <clears throat> it was a good twelve to four. Uh, it was a good twelve to twenty-four months before this all sort of finally reached a point where we went, you know, what we can't. This is completely unsustainable. I mean, you're talking about a time when publishers literally had no cash flow, so um, they weren't able to pay developers for the work that had already been done, let alone thinking about future work. So that's that's the sort of environment that we we found ourselves in. And then on the back end of that, the entire games industry was was transitioning. Um, and, you know, mobile games were sort of becoming uh, more of an interest for, for publishers in terms of making sales. Um, there was a whole new sort of indie scene. So the whole, the whole you know, FIFA service work industry that we were in and that sort of mid-tier game development um, side of things just disappeared overnight. Yeah, um, it was certainly a lot easier at that point to just speak directly to the consumer without necessarily needing to have a, a middle party, um, regardless of yeah, big publisher or or a small one or anywhere in the middle. It was yeah, starting to become less necessary, and the indies proved it. Um, and obviously, the the GFC had a bit to part, a bit to play with that as well. And so, having worked on the likes of Looney Tunes, Space Chimps, Jumper, and those sort of titles, there it was then, as we discussed with uh, with kind of the mobile scene there, the wonderfully named Hairy Balls. Um, so, I mean, firstly, like before we even dive into the game itself, because I, I like to keep the, the audience who are listening here completely bemused for as long as possible. So before we actually explain what the game is, how did the name Hairy Balls come about and how did that stick? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, um, I think it was a joke. So I think someone said, you know, we, we, we were working on this, this game and someone said, you know, let's call it Hairy Balls. And then someone else said, uh, hey, do you want to play with my Hairy Balls? And we thought, this is hilarious. This is, this is, this is the start of something. And so, so we never in our wildest dreams did we think Apple would accept this as a, as a game name. <laughs> um, I remember we, we put in our application to name the game Hairy Balls into the App Store. And uh, I think I was with my family and we were driving down the freeway and I got a call from someone at Apple in in, in, in uh, San Francisco. And so I pulled the car over to the side of the road to, to hear what this guy is saying. And I, Expecting and, to get rejected, he, of course. Yeah, he was saying, look, why do you think that you can get this this, this title, Hairy Balls? Um, why do you think you can get this through the App Store? Like, why did you think we would accept it? And I said, well, if you type, you know, Hairy Balls games into Google, you'll see there's a, there's, there's a plethora of kids' toys, and they're all called Hairy Balls. So we just thought, you know, why can't we have our own Hairy Balls game? I could hear in the background there were people laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he had specifically called us up with an audience to see what we were about to say. And the funny thing was that we, we made a strong enough case that we were able to get it into the, to the App Store unchanged. So we, we, we have this, this patent for Hairy Balls, and we had the first, you know, sort of, pushing the limits name on the app store i would say <laughs> yeah but uh, certainly a good way to pitch it's like hey well there's physical toys a kid a kid can go pick up some hairy balls at the shops oh, i'm gonna stop saying this this is gonna get out but uh, like <laughs> they can go pick up that physical no, no no okay moving on anyway um so that was we, obviously we the had, first. we had a huge following in the gay community so you know that was that was interesting we had we had two million i think at its peak we had two million simultaneous players uh, playing that game that's no small no small feat and the, re the retention metrics were off the charts so we had 
I think after 90 days, we had a 20% retention of, of players. So it wasn't just a gimmick, you know, it was, it was a great game. Well, that's the thing. I mean, people can maybe click on a game and download it because, ha it's a funny name. They might make the jokes for 20 minutes, but actually to get them to stick around, that's a whole other thing. Uh, and that's, that's an issue that obviously every game developer and publisher, big or small, has still today. It's like, not only is there, you know, what we can get you with, with a box art or a name or some clever marketing, whatever the case is, but there needs to be some substance behind this as well to actually keep people on the hook and, and you obviously succeeded in that. You got people in the door with a with a great and funny name, but you had to have a product that went with it. So, um, a massive congratulations for for the success of of the of the game and and convincing Apple Thank that you. that name was going to actually be okay as well, because that almost feels like the more challenging part. Um, it does sound like they might have been ready to say yes anyway. They just wanted to they wanted to have the conversation, just have a laugh. If they got the whole conference room filled up and ready to go. <laughs> I think I think you're right. I think you're right. But I, I think I, I could hear some lady in the background. I think she spat a drink out at one point. It was. Um, and so I guess another important part in the whole thing we've we've obviously discussed a lot of licensed um, franchises up to this point, and obviously Harry Balls, unsurprisingly to pretty much everyone listening right now, wasn't that. It was a new, new IP. It was your own product. And so what was that like having that? I guess creative freedom and that license considering the the majority of the experiences you'd had prior to that stage so yeah i mean that, that's a really good question it was it was a it was a so hairy balls essentially it's a puzzle game it's a sequential puzzle game and so what you have to do is you you know you, you have a board and you have two or three or four uh, different characters and you have to get each character to its goal but you have to do it in a particular sequence it sounds really really simple but once you get into it it's really really deep and it was a game that i had in the back of my mind for absolutely donkey's years like i just wanted to make this game and you know i i knew it was going to be really popular and i and i knew how it was going to feel and i knew how it was going to um work in terms of the depth of the mechanic itself and so i was really desperate to get this out and this is again this is one of the reasons yes you know the gfc downturn was this terrible thing that happens to you and 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 in life in general you know you have these these huge upheavals of your life as industry changes as work changes as your family situation changes but yeah. off the back end of that is this 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 rebirth and this growth and it gave me the opportunity to actually finally sit down and, and realize that new game that new concept which was our original ip and so i guess following on from that we've got and i'll i'll kind of bundle these together because we've got the cluster and um axiflux to kind of discuss there as well before we kind of jump onto play corp and more of the current day sort of activities um but can we can we discuss those two just before we jump over to play corp um i guess the nature Absolutely. of everything involved there so um i so the cluster is an interesting one so back back when the cluster started there was no such thing as Co the term co-working didn't actually exist yet. Yeah. And the way that the cluster started, the cluster is, is a co-working space, but the way that it started was, um, I remembered how hard it was when we started Blue Tongue and when we started Red Tribe and we, we needed access to, you know, high bandwidth internet. We needed a lot of equipment and we needed a lot of infrastructure. It was all very, very expensive. And there was, there was, there was nothing for us. I mean, as, as a startup, you want to have an, an, an environment that you can scale into and scale back as needed. And also it can be really, really lonely. Like if you're just making a game by yourself or you have a really small team, you, you're not interacting with, with many people uh, doing that. And so we created the, the cluster, which eventually got known as a co-working space, but the cluster was, was born out of that. So it actually, 
so I think this is 2008, you know, Red Tribe had just gone through the, the GFC. Um, we finally paid out all of um, our staff and everyone had gone their separate ways. And I'm sitting in this office, we'd spent almost half a million dollars uh, on the fit out of the office. I think we spent $115,000 to have dark fiber internet connection to the office. And you're sitting in this office and I'm thinking, right, if we just let this office go, um, whoever moves into this office isn't going to, they're just going to gut it and start again. So why don't we just open this office up and, and, and see what happens? And, and it was kind of almost like a joke. Like we had a logo, which was a photograph of a giraffe I took at Melbourne Zoo and we painted its tongue blue and we whacked that on the, on, on, on the website and said, you know, cluster open for business. If you need a space to work, come to us. And within six months, we were overflowing with a, a waiting list. So, it's it's a good problem to have at that point too. And I guess it, there's a lot of uh, parallels that people will draw, especially if you're kind of from the Melbourne scene, which I guess I know a little bit better. Things like the arcade and those sorts of things, where you've got these collaborative collaborative working spaces and and similar sorts of things that we see popping up all around the place. Because it's a, it's a, I mean, COVID obviously had a bit to say in more recent days when it sorry more recent years when it comes to those sort of spaces but a fantastic fantastic sort of idea that not only is fan, uh, fantastic in terms of the things you've discussed but an ability to share resources share knowledge all that collaborative working stuff is really really valuable especially if you're just starting to make your way into this industry yeah i mean we, we incubated the arcade in a sense so the, the game developers association we, we gave them you know a free desk in our space initially and um we also gave them, I think it was like $20,000 at the time to, to try and get the local games industry uh, moving because it come through a really, really rough patch. And then the government was also then stepping in at the same time to help with more cash. And eventually the arcade grew out of the cluster in a way. So we'll, we'll just add that notch to your belt as well um, while, we're, while we're going through this. We'll cla- claim it, claim take, it. I can't take credit for their success, but we, we, they were there with us at that, that crucial moment. And certainly, I mean, it was a fantastic thing what was going with the arcade and, um, again, hopefully more of these sort of things continue to spring up in the future. Um, there's the Axiflux component, which, to my understanding, a little less directly related to games. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in... Um, I, I, I was studying electrical engineering at Melbourne University, so I'm always interested in, in electronics and, and technology and AI. I have all of these various interests. I'm all- always doing creative projects on the side but that that wasn't really that was um, a friend of mine um, he was building a new type of smart electric motor it's a fundamental shift in the way that electric motors work so if you can imagine electric motor is like a massive coil of of copper wire and you yep. essentially you run you run an alternating current through it and it and it turns a motor his idea was to break it down so that each so so that each uh, magnet was in, independently controlled by a microcontroller and there's a number of different advantages for doing this one is this sort of divide and conquer idea so if you can imagine i don't know if you know much about electrical engineering but it's not my greatest strength but I'll, I'll try i'll try and make sense of it okay so imagine a, a big current coming into a, a massive motor this motor might be 150 kilowatts if you divide that motor up over lots of small magnets and each one is controlled by a microcontroller then you have an exponential reduction in um energy wastage and it also has the uh, combined benefit of variable speed control. So when you have a motor of that size and you need to change the speed at which it turns, you need an inverter. So for example, electric cars have inverters in them, but an inverter for um, some of these industrial applications is the size of a fridge. Yeah, right. So in, in, yeah, they're not very efficient. And uh, in many cases, such as mining, for example, you can't fit it in that, they don't have the space for it. So 
So the unique aspect of this motor is that, um, you know, in a mining situation, you can just replace an existing uh, fan motor with one of our motors, and it becomes a smart, smart motor that can be uh, that can have its uh, speed altered. Uh, so if you re if you reduce the speed of the motor by 20%, for example, in, depending on on need, you can reduce the energy expenditure by 80%. And these are on mines in the middle of nowhere where the cost of diesel to get the diesel out there is horrendous. So we had a lot of interest from the mining industry. Uh, Fortescue Metals, at one point we had a $20 million deal that nearly went through with Fortescue Metals. Unfortunately, that fell through when they had a management change and various other reasons. Um, but we're, we're, we're in the process now of, um, we're actually working with a, a few people that we were talking to back then to continue the development of the motor. Um, you're, you're a busy man, fingers in many pies and doing some fantastic things. That's, that's, that's awesome to hear as well. And uh, to be able to do that as well as, I guess, building up PlayCorp as well, um, as well as all the other previous work that we've already discussed as well. It's just an in incredibly impressive feat and congratulations for that. But let's, let's pivot over to, to PlayCorp and Beyond Contact um, even as, as some of your most recent work. So I guess having had some of these different experiences, some challenges along the way, the GFC um, and everything else we've kind of discussed at this point, co-founding another studio, what was that like for you at first? So yeah, it's a, very, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. You, you know, you finally got out of games again. Why the hell did you get back into games again? Um, and we've kind of touched on that a little bit, that people end up kind of getting looped back. But at the same time, it's, I guess, whenever someone does, presumably there's a, there's a good reason for it. So, so PlayCorp was founded, myself and Silvio Salom, who's quite a well-known uh, businessman here in, in Melbourne. He, he has his, a number of successful businesses. I think um, Adacel was, was, was one of them. They had like 1,400 engineers at some time. But so PlayCorp kind of started as a conversation that I had with Silvio on his balcony down in St Kilda. And, and uh, we were just talking about, you know, how can we, you know, how, how can we create a, a studio that focuses purely on um, its own intellectual property, like it makes its own games. Like how, how's that gonna work rather than doing fee-for-service work? Because yep. a lot of Australian development up to that point had been fee-for-service work, but you were starting to see a lot of great local content being created. And, it, and I guess there's this feeling that, you you know, we should be a part of this. We, we, we've been working so hard in this industry. We have so much experience. Um, maybe we can, now, now is the right time to create our own, our own game. Um, and we were always, you know, fascinated by sort of the aesthetic of the Pulp Fiction comics. I'm not sure if you're aware of, of, of that yeah. that style. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, gr growing up on, on comics as, as, a, as a kid in the UK, and uh, I remember, I don't know if you, you're aware of a comic called Dan Dare and the Mekong, but it was... Oh, okay, no, I don't know that one, though. I'll, I'll concede there. It was, it was so ahead of its time, but the, the artistic style kind of stuck, and uh, the depth and, you know, some of the moral dilemmas... It was it was way ahead of its time in terms of technology as well. It was talking about things like you know set, sending satellites into space to capture uh, solar energy and then beaming microwaves down to the planet Earth, and that would that would be our sustainable source of energy. And we're talking about you know in the 1970s and 80s. This is this is way way ahead of its time. Um, and then um, this apocalyptic event that happens when the Mekon, which is this alien with this great big giant head, appears and takes these satellites out. You know, essentially sending mankind uh, into oblivion, and and then Dan Dare is the hero of the day. So this is the kind of backdrop for what we were imagining, and then we wanted our protagonist to be really, really different. We didn't want just another hack and slash game. We wanted our protagonist to be 
an engineer, a scientist, an explorer. We wanted it to be to have to be um, uh, sort of to have more dimension to her. That was the objective yep. of the game. So and and we we were all playing survival games at the time. We just absolutely freaking love survival games. So we took this these story. We wanted to create a game that combined these story elements with the survival genre together in this in this unique setting. That's um. I mean, look, I messed around the game when it was in early access, and obviously we're going to touch on the fact that it's recently gone into 1.0, and I guess hearing some of the the background behind that, despite not necessarily recognising that one particular comic series along the way there, like, adds a hell of a lot of context to the sort of things that I've messed around with and played there, and is a really, really fascinating thing. I guess another important facet is your your last work there, as we discussed, Harry, Harry Pauls, uh, was a mobile title, pivoting back to the more traditional... Um, landscape that you were certainly kind of born and bred on when it came to uh, your video game consumption side of things. Uh, was that an important thing for you as well in terms of actually when you were first building the game up? Was that traditional space always the intended destination? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. And um, the, the danger for us is that we are bringing some more some some older ideas back to the fore. It's almost it almost has a retro feel to it. You know, like, I don't know if you remember the RTS games used to have like story mission based yes. modes and then you'd have these freeform modes and that's kind of what we have in Beyond Contact. So we, we, we're bringing a, a bit of that back and and the fear was, is that going to work or are people going to go, you know, is it a story game or is it a an endless survival game? Which one is it? Pick one. You know, we had some comments along the lines there. I, I think we I think we can pull it off. We still have... I mean, just to be clear, we still have a lot of work to do on this game. We we know that there's a lot of fixes that are that are needed. Um, we didn't actually think it would be review as well as it did in early access. We but we we discovered a really really passionate <laughs> community that really helped us build the game up, which was just wonderful for the team. You know. I mean, thankfully, uh, you know, not expecting it to review as well as it did is a pretty good problem to have in the end. But um, I guess what do you learn from that early access period, despite the fact that the the reviews were you know quite positive and people were feeling really good about the game? Obviously, there's feedback. It's it, um, with this 1.0 build, there's a lot of additions and changes that have that have come with it. So, what are some of those learnings that you picked up from there that were things that you instantly recognised? Okay, this has to be you know, priority one or two, like right up near the top of that pecking order in terms of things that we need to address and improve and add, tweak, etc. Well, you know, the, the the DNA of the game, it was originally supposed to be a very, very difficult game to play. And 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 um, what people were telling us is, yeah, that's fine, but the difficulty shouldn't be difficulty centered around frustrating mechanics. And it's when you've been working on a game for a long time, it's really hard for you to see. That Forest from the trees and all that. That's right, and um, so so that tension has existed for quite some time, and we're only kind of really coming to terms with it with version one, and then with the next version that's coming out uh, probably in, in in the next two to four weeks, uh, we're going we're, we're going much further down that that path. So it's it's things like you know, under no circumstances should a, an action or an event in the game cause you to to die instantly. <laughs> that's right. fair. And, and the reason for this is you may never have encountered this this void rift or this creature before. You may not, never have realized that it has a particular action that you need to be aware of. Um, and th- th- again, this is it go- goes back right to the, the original concept of the game was to make it incredibly difficult. But what we what we've done in those in those particular circumstances is we've made it 
frustratingly hard as opposed to hard for good reasons. And so th- these are the... Yeah, that, I mean, that, they're all very important things to consider. I guess I come at it thinking about the, the conversations that we see online about from soft games and those sort of things and people commenting on the difficulty around those. And um, I think there's a lot of things that developers around the world and... Uh, maybe not from soft because they don't see, they seem to turn their nose up at the feedback about the difficulty in their games but a lot of people have been uh, learning I think from that conversation so, okay what is what is fair difficulty versus that unfair and kind of where frustration becomes problematic in that whole I guess spectrum really it's it's really really fascinating it's it, it's awesome to hear about how you've been addressing that yourself it's just so incredibly complicated. I mean, it, there are so many moving parts. The game is just so big. You know, you've got you've got combat systems, you've got story elements, you've got habitat construction systems, um, you've got objective systems, research, crafting, uh, farming. You know, there's so many different elements that have to come together and work. So if you're investing that amount of time, the thing that we didn't think of is you're in, initially, I would say, is that when you've invested two or three hours to build a habitat and you and you suddenly die and you lose everything it's it's not acceptable and so i think we fixed a lot of that in the early access you know as as soon as we started getting the feedback look you guys are not don't starve there's a there's a level of investment here which is which is greater uh, in terms of what you're doing and so the game had to naturally evolve and uh, there was no way we could have predicted the way that the game was going to evolve i'm really excited about the the upcoming changes because it sol- it, resol- it resolves this final bit of tension, I think. So th- there were a lot of comments about durability. You know, you, you invest a lot of time to create a, a higher tier armor, for example, and that higher tier armor opens up more of the map to you, protects you from hazards and things like that. But the durability of that that, that armor compared to the price you paid to, um, to, to, to craft it was completely unacceptable. So some games uh, like, like uh, a lot of survival crafting games, you know, when, when your item degrades in its durability and it breaks, you can still carry that item back, maybe take it back to your base and then rejuvenate it in some way. But we didn't have that mechanic either. So the answer there is quite simple. If you have an item, which is a high tier item, which, which is really expensive to construct, make sure its durability matches its cost. Um, <laughs> Look, uh, I mean, the whole durability and weapon breaking thing is a, is one of those fickle topics. There's a certain high-profile Nintendo game that's coming out fairly soon that uh, that uh, upsets a few people due to the weapon durability. Personally, I'm not a big fan of how they do it in Breath of the Wild, but that's I'll I'll just whisper that because I might get shattered down by the masses online. Um, so it, it's always one of those really contentious sort of things, and trying to find that sweet spot can be a real challenge. A bit like the difficulty component we were just discussing. It, it is a real challenge. I mean, it's so easy to jump to conclusions, right? So, um, I mean, one of the conclusions we could have jumped to quite easily if we didn't really think about it more carefully was, hey, look, our audience wants a more casual experience. But that definitely isn't the case for everyone. Like, we have some players that really like that hard challenge. And so I think you need to start looking at the data, and this is something that we're doing now. We're, we've got the, the easy, the normal, and the hard modes. We've got certain settings for them. I don't think we're quite matching people's expectations on the easy setting. So we, we actually had a meeting about this this morning where we said, look, we need to recontextualize what we mean by easy. And let's think of it from the player's point of view, first of all. If the player is playing an easy game, they don't expect to die easily. And then let's let's look at all of the mechanics and, 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 and what, what happens. Because you can get buried in the details, like you were saying before, right? Where 
you start fixing individual pieces, but but you're not looking for that that one scenario where hold on, by the time they get to this place, their health is going to be twenty percent, and if they get hit by the crog, they're instant. They're going to instantly die, and it's over. So you you, you can so so. It, it, it's much more complicated than we, we could have possibly imagined because we have to look at the expectation of the person that goes into that easy mode. Then we have to create an avatar for that person, figure out what they're expecting, and then we have to analyze <laughs> everything we have to match that expectation. And I guess when you put it like that, it's the whole video games. Who'd do it? <laughs> thing that kind of pops in the head. And yet, as we keep saying, keep circling back around and coming back because it's just an amazing industry to be, to be a part of. Um, and I guess with that, we're starting to run light on time. So I'll, I'll jump, I'll cycle back to kind of, actually, no, before we before we progress, I better give you a moment to kind of spotlight the game for anyone who's listening and, and likes what they're hearing and wants to check the game out. Where can they where can they do so? So jump onto Steam. It's Beyond Contact. Two words. And um, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd love for you to, to play the game. We're, we're actively developing this game uh over the coming years so any feedback that you give us greatly appreciated we have an active discord as well where you can talk directly to us so if you have any feedback or ideas we have a, a feature upvote system as well which we've used extensively since the early access uh, so you know your ideas can actually get implemented into the game uh, we're passionate about the game we love playing our own game now we didn't in the in the early days you know we were really disappointed in the game but we really really love playing our own game now we play it on a regular basis so we'd love to see that and you know so if there's any concerns about being too you know too close to it that's something this is this is a really good place to be when it comes to that so so make sure that the, the team chris and the team totally invested make sure you get get around it as, as mentioned the discord and i'll make sure to put that in the show notes for people to check out as well so as we start to wind things down i'd like to cycle a little bit back to you more specifically is there anyone that you've worked with or you look at from afar that has really served as an inspiration for you within this game development scene but also more broadly considering you've got experiences outside of it as well yeah i mean the first person that comes to mind is my business partner silvio salom so starting a company it can be a very very lonely experience and um there are good ways of of doing things and there are bad ways of doing things. Sometimes you need to align yourself with the right sort of business partner that has had success um, and maybe does things a little bit differently. So a, a lot of people that are successful um, that can't quite articulate why they're successful or you know it's it's a particular strategy that they have in mind which might not align with your ethics and your your morals. Yes. And so if you can find a mentor that does things in a way that's 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 ethical and moral and also reaches a level of success that was really inspirational for me um it's not something that i you know when i was in my early 20s and 30s it wasn't really consideration at all i mean you, you would do anything it took to succeed. do whatever it takes yeah <laughs> but i think as you get older you, you become much more curious about the path and the journey because you know if you want to survive mentally in the games industry and you and you want to thrive in the games industry you really do need to understand yourself, your your insecurities and your weaknesses, and you need to be aware of how things are affecting you because it really it really can be a very very rough ride for many people. You mentioned before, you know, people get into the games industry and they get stuck because they love it so much. There's also a whole bunch of people that get into the games industry and they have certain expectations. It doesn't meet their expectations, and they don't last very long. Yeah. Um, 
and that's really really sad because they they love and they have this great passion for games and I'd, I'd say to them you know give it another go but maybe spend a bit of time working on yourself as well before you do that's yeah that's that's really fascinating perspective um because often for, for fairly obvious reasons those people that you just discussed there the sort that maybe come don't find the industry as being what they want to be and leave naturally haven't been on this show because they're not, not a part of the industry anymore so that's a really fascinating perspective to to bring um to the conversation and, and thank you for doing so um had there been any especially valuable lessons that you've learned along the way that still kind of serve as a bit of a, a north star now um i i i think if i had listened more to my own intuition over the years things would have gone a lot smoother <laughs> i i I think um, I've had a lot of experience working with publishers and you you know it's it's great to have that external influence and it's great to have somebody keeping you on track but I think you know in the early part of my career I was too um, involved in keeping the publisher happy and yep. to a certain extent the money that they provide to create the game can corrupt the vision of the game and the direction of the game that you're trying to that you're trying to make. Yep. Uh, so, you, you know, you might go from what might have been a 90 score to an 85 or to an 80 uh, uh, on, a, on your particular game. And, and, and the reason is because, you know, you're, you're pandering to this external party. They're coming up with ideas and they have so much influence over the game because they're the ones that are, that are, that are paying, paying bills, right? So my answer to this question is you have a lot more power and a lot more say than you think. And I didn't realize this in the early days. Like, you can say no. <laughs> and you can be more forceful about the creative thing that you're trying to create and i think that would be, that would be a big big lesson no that's that's an awesome bit of feedback and again something that's really really important i think for a lot of people to hear that you know there is that power that you've got and not not take advantage of but utilize it in the best way possible um, I, I also i have a shout out to play on like quite literally they have been like their production team has been probably the best production team we could have ever hoped for it's certainly the best production team i've ever worked with really really experienced guys you know they're all industry guys you know people that have have had their studios purchased or have been working at studios that were purchased and have moved into the the play on community so i think you're going to see some really amazing things coming out of play on in, in the coming you know five to ten years as as these individuals start to shine within that organization that's fantastic to hear and uh, as someone who gets those press releases on the on the regular i'm really excited to see some of the cool things that will be coming down the pipeline in the future as well as of course those further updates for your own game as we've already touched on um some fun ones as we start to wrap it up now uh if you could be credited for any game just in some way have been in part responsible for a certain title is there one game that you just wish you could have been a part of is it something like civ as we've already discussed I think it'd have to be Age of Empires. Like Civ was the starting point for it all, but Age of Empires showed us how to do it in in you know real time RTS. I still one day would want to create my own RTS game if we can do something even remotely close to you know Age of Empires two was my favourite. So, well, I mean, how how could it not be? You just picked it out of your neutral grain and off you went, right? Well, I remember you know there, I think there was like four major studios in in Melbourne, including um, Blue Tongue. And we all use we, we we actually set up a competition. We were all playing Age of Empires two against each other at one point. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's that's really cool. Um, oh, geez, so just thinking about those Nutrigrain days and popping uh, popping Age of Empires in, and I wasn't much of a PC person, but that turned me into one for a for a good chunk of time. 
similar sort of question. If you could go back and replay any game, strike it from your memory and get to re-experience it all over again, the highs, the lows, whatever, what game would you pick? Do you remember Space Quest? Yes. I know Space Quest. <laughs> I yeah. know. If, you, if you got to erase, erase your memory and replay Space... I mean, Space Quest was a game that I used to play in, in high school with my mate. And we would we would play for hours and we would squeal. I mean, that thing was just hilarious. That's and also I think that might be the first time, and it's not to even discredit Space Quest anyway. I think that might be the first time that that game's come up as a response to this particular question too. So it's a it's a nice <laughs> one adding to this, but it's it's yeah, fantastic title and um, oh geez, I've, I don't think I have thought about it in a long time, but that's a fantastic pick. I don't know how far you got into the game, but I remember at one point we we were battling giant mechs against each other, and and to do this on on a, on a I think it was like a two eight six PC at the time or something ridiculous, it just felt beyond amazing. I mean, I'm sure if I saw it today, it would look like absolute trash, but I still remember the feeling of getting into this mech and battling this other mech. Uh, it's a game where you start off as a janitor, right, and you end up uh, <laughs> climbing the ranks. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's oh, geez, I have to jump on YouTube and look at some old footage of it. It's been it's been such a long time. I'm sure it'll, I'm sure there'll be plenty out there. Um, so, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far, sharing some fascinating insights into a whole range of different experiences you've had throughout this industry so far, the coming in and out, the ups and downs, and everything along the way, um, and of course. Uh, sharing a bit of info on Beyond Contact as well as as the current release. As you've already touched on, there's there's a lot more that people can continue to engage with from the Discord. Um, but is there anywhere else, if people are looking for further information beyond just the Discord, is there anywhere else where that people should go? Um, let's see. So, uh, yeah, I mean, feel free to contact us directly. We're, we're happy to hear from you. We have a lot of, we have a lot of DMS. We have some great conversations with people. Some of them are engineers, some of them are developers, and we can get really down and dirty with them and, and figure out like what's going on. Uh, we a lot of the, the designs that we've got have been from, 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 from third parties and problems we've had. So, you know, feel free to contact us directly. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and if anyone's looking to see or learn more about what you more individually are up to, is there anywhere, whether it's social media or anything that people could go? Well, Paul, the thing is, I'm, I'm an introvert, so I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm invisible. I just, I keep to myself. Well played. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just the way I, you know, my ability to speak and to present is just overcompensating for the fact that I'm extremely shy. So just bear that in mind. But I'm, I'm, I'm always, my door is always open. I'm willing to talk to anyone. So, and you know, some of our, some of the best employees that we've ever hired. One guy, he just walked off the street one day and said, "Hey, I just want to show you my." He showed me his animation work, and it absolutely blew up. You know, it was better than anything we'd ever done in the studio up to that point, and we hired him literally on the spot. So, you know, doors always open, um, always open to, to communicate. But you're not, you're not going to find me actively going out there and <laughs> spooking. Yes. <laughs> no, and that, that's fair enough. But uh, I've, I mean. Despite everything you've said, obviously, uh, introvert, whatever, you've spo- uh, spoken, shared so much, and it's been fascinating to learn all about your story so far. So, uh, I guess from me and on behalf of the audience, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been great. And listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. See you later. That concludes this episode of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. 
If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Chris's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.